The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, operators about all things tech investing and startup business creation. Today, I am with John Mizzy, who is the founder and CEO of Vero Technologies and Lever. Vero Technologies helps banks and credit unions offer a diversified set of commercial credit products to better serve SMBs in their communities. And Lever offers offers floor plan leasing to auto dealerships to better finance their inventory. Prior to Vero Technology and Lever, John was the CSO and COO of Bond One, which was a, a venture, or excuse me, was a capital markets technology platform focused on streamlining settlement and reconciliation functions for asset servicers. And he was also the BP of strategy and marketing at CBX Market, which is a portfolio management software solution for investment managers. John, how you doing? I'm good, David. Good to be with you. How do you manage your time being a CEO of two companies? Well, um, it's an interesting question. There's, uh, I've, I've gotten to a point now where the reality is the only time I really have for deep, thoughtful reflection and, and uninterrupted work time ends up being Saturday mornings. Um, but I really have kind of tried to optimize my week so that I can front load um, you know, the, the more thoughtful, uh, conversations and modeling exercises and things like that on the, the, you know, front half of the week. Inevitably by Thursday, Friday, there's a bit of brain drain, um, just from, you know, exhaustion of everything going on. So I actually like to end my day somewhat early Friday afternoons, recoup, recover, recognizing that I still am going to be able to be productive and get ahead Saturday morning and then really set myself up for success the following week. Do you have kids? I am very single, which okay. I'll, uh, I'll admit it's um, it's hard to imagine going through this journey and uh, necessarily being responsible to others or having a family. But yeah. my co-founder Isaac is married, um, and so I know there's ways that people can do it. I'm fortunate to benefit from having a little bit more of a selfish schedule. Yeah, you should do like what Ray Kroc did with all of his franchisees, which is just make sure the wife is at the closing dinner when trying to recruit people to make sure that she's on board for the treacherous road ahead. Absolutely. I try to let everyone else insulate themselves from weekend work and uh, definitely carve out more time for the family. But right now, my baby is, uh, is the business. That's going to be like, I mean, pretty hard. I mean, I see a lot of founders. It sounds like you're pretty pretty aware, but I, I know a lot of founders that are, you know, completely married to their business, don't have other relationships, and they're sending out scathing text messages and emails at three in the morning, giving their their, you know, their employees anxiety attacks, right? Total lack of boundary, especially now when, you know, everything is on Slack and, and text message and Zoom. Um, I mean, do you do do uh, I mean obviously that's not that's not your style, but um, I definitely see that that's that can be a thing. 
Well, I definitely wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about things and I don't hesitate from sending out the flurry of Slack and email messages. With that being said, when we onboard all new folks, we have everyone do a call it an intake form where they can specify their preferred work times. When do they like having meetings? When do they want to be able to do deep focused work? Um, And really, the exercise is meant to accomplish two things. First is just to get a better sense of you know what the working styles are of people that come on board. And the other is to have a conversation to set expectations where I can convey like, look, I am going to do what suits me, which is sending out those middle of the night Slack messages as I'm thinking about something. With that being said, there is no expectation that you need to respond to those things, you know, until you're back at the computer the next day. You know, the worst thing, and I experienced this myself, is waking up in the morning and I try to not look at my phone first thing that I do, but inevitably some mornings I do. Um, and then getting triggered by something that came in overnight. And so my goal is really to help everyone else get comfortable with that. They need to manage themselves first and foremost to be successful. Um, and then only when they can be successful in their role in the business is the business going to be able to function over the long haul. Right. Because when you're sending out your emails, that essentially is kind of like your checklist, right? You're getting, you're executing task by task. You know, there's a system of record that shows, you know, what's been sent to who. And, but that doesn't necessarily mean like, I need this back right away. This is just my process. Yeah. And we even kind of set a hierarchy of, you know, anything that needs a immediate response next time you're available is going to be Slack. Email, the expectation is that you're going to respond in the next 12 hours unless it's a weekend and you can respond on Monday. If there's anything over the weekend that I need, I'm going to send you a text message, but I try not to do that. Um, And then really, obviously, we have our scheduled routine calls, which kind of keep the communication flow functioning um, without having a lot of ad hoc, you know, outreach. Awesome. And so uh, how many employees do you have right now? We are up to 11 onshore and uh, about 15 offshore. Super, super awesome. Well, why don't we just take it? Why don't, why don't we just start with uh, the business, both businesses, both Vero and uh, Lever, and then um, we're going to talk a little bit about your background. And you know, But first, let's talk about your business. What does it do? And what, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we recognize, and this was from an experience I had in a prior role, um, but that there was a gap in terms of um, firms focusing on providing inventory financing to dealers of manufactured goods. So we're talking about auto, boats, RVs, zero-turn lawnmowers, spas. There's 17 different verticals of manufactured goods that are distributed through dealership networks. And typically, all of those dealers are using some type of inventory financing. Um, And so digging into the space a bit deeper, we were really confused because all of these dealerships were primarily working with their local community bank in order to um, there for, for generic business banking services. But then they were having to go to X specialty finance company to get the inventory financing line of credit that they're looking for. And so we found that many of these banks had tried to do inventory financing, um, did not have the scale in order to justify the investment in systems that they needed, um, and did not have the specialized headcount within their credit organizations in order to actually administer, you know, a diverse set of of commercial credit products. So the gap that we really set out to solve is is really there's kind of two sides of the market here. There's banks that want to offer 
a wider array of commercial credit products, but simply don't know how to do it or don't have the scale to do it on themselves efficiently. And the other side is this community of dealers who have really been left to work with specialty finance companies where the cost of funds is high, the borrower experience is low um, in terms of quality, and um, their preferred financial services provider is in fact the community or regional bank in whatever market that they're located in that they have a, a history or a relationship with. Um, and so we've really tried to tackle, you know, both of those problems, albeit in slightly, you know, different cadences. Um, and so that really, you know, that's what we were working on at Vera, which is the parent company. We ultimately launched Lever, which is a balance sheet lending organization as a subsidiary of Vero because we knew that in order to sell into those banks, we needed to have a track record of operating as a lender ourselves, not only to build out the kind of services function that we offer to the bank, but further because as acting or operating our own lending platform from a product development standpoint has allowed us a built-in feedback loop so we can iterate on new solutions and tools to administer our own lending platform and at the same time license that technology and our services organization to the bank. Okay, right on. And so are you are you are you focusing on any particular like a dealer network or or vertical within manufacturing that um yeah, so we got started with auto as our beachhead. That simply is because inventory financing is a somewhat mature product among auto dealers, albeit there's a lot of um, churn. And I would say from a penetration standpoint, there's a lot of opportunity in terms of where we can take that market opportunity. With that being said, we've since moved into uh, marine RVs, power sports vehicles, really because the kind of dynamics of inventory financing for those that subset of dealerships is very similar to auto. Um, beyond that, we'll look at doing more specialty stuff, whether that's the zero-turn lawnmowers, spas, um, motor coach vehicles, etc. Okay. All right. So that, that's interesting. So you pivoted away from the car dealerships. Uh, we still do focus on auto as our kind of core vertical, but we've extended the scope of the platform services to cover those other verticals that I mentioned. Got it. So what, what, what was the learning behind the car dealerships? Um, you know, really that the, the interesting takeaway is we're talking about SMBs at the end of the day. So we right. had a very sophisticated underwriting model that was heavily based on their financial reporting in order to determine credit quality of these dealers. And the reality is that as is similar with just about any SMB that you're looking to underwrite, the quality of financial reporting isn't always there or is not necessarily thorough or robust enough to really uh, lean on exclusively in terms of determining creditworthiness. So we've had to look at a variety of different alternative, call it characteristics or data sets that we could utilize in order to determine quality of financial and operational performance amongst our dealers in order to actually uh, effectively underwrite the the lines of credit that we that we extend them. Yeah, so that's really interesting that you said that because I remember when you know I was looking at the Vero the Vero deal and I think you were you're raising on a fund um, and I was you know making some 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 introduction or excuse me making some connections for me to kind of understand the space better and I did hear something to that tune is that you know the long tail nature of these independent dealers you know they're they're they don't have the data 
right? Or it's, it's so disparate that it's hard to roll that out at scale. And for that reason, I passed, but I'm also an idiot, right? Because I don't ever account. I always look at a business on how it's going to be today and not what it could be and taking into, you know, for granted, like where the, where the, the pivots can be, how resourceful are founders. And I'm going to, you know, rue the day that I that I did not invest um, because it sounds like you're absolutely killing it right now, which is awesome. There's a long list of VCs who fall into the same bucket as you, sir. So uh, don't take it. <laughs> don't feel too bad about it. Good. Yeah, because my, my, my bar is not too high. I just want to be good enough, right? Like I want to be the good enough VC, not I want to be exceptional. So, um, so let me ask you a question, my man. Um, tell me, tell me like... From a fintech perspective, you have to offer, you know, you talked about needing this data to algorithmically determine creditworthiness and needing to understand, you know, um, you know, the different kind of drivers and variables. What does a product need to look like in fintech to be able to do that? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, and this is an interesting kind of vector to evaluate but uh, there in my mind there's no fintech solution that's just a all-in-one builder from the ground up standalone solution there's you would be silly to invest the time and resources into building a credit platform that doesn't utilize data from other um embedded solutions. So whether that's using open banking tools like plaid thinking of different alternative data providers that are out there um, that allow you to get a deeper perspective on your customer based on their interactions away from your platform. Um, you know, to think more specifically, we all of these dealers are using a variety of other technology tools, whether it's a dealer management system, a marketing and website solution, some type of inventory management tools, but they're creating a lot of public facing content. And so even social media reviews amongst dealers. So looking at it's not just what's the rating on Google for a dealer, but if there is a one-star rating from someone, how is the dealer responding to that rate? Is it polite and conciliatory and, you know, let's put our heads together to find a solution? Or is it, well, screw you, it was a buy-as-is deal, and so not my problem. And so you can really suss out more, call it character you know, there's the five C's in credit, character being a very important one of those. And you can suss out, you know, character as a as a vector by which to evaluate the dealer using these alternative data points that are all in the public domain, but not necessarily what a traditional um, credit risk officer might be looking Right. And so a lot of the intangibles, right, that a business might have. And so when underwriting uh, this this kind of stuff, it's more than just um, working capital, you know, days outstanding, Asian receivables, any of that stuff. There's a, there's a whole lot of litany of other, you know, things that you put in your calculus to see if uh, they're credit worthy. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So you just raised around, I heard. Yeah, so we closed a $4 million seed round at $16 million pre-money. Um, and we also, in parallel, um, took on a $50 million credit facility to really fuel platform growth in terms of our lending activities. Um, 
we're fortunate in parallel to that as well. Um, we've also lined up a handful of banks for lending as a service engagements, um, which is really what I was talking about earlier, where we partner with the bank to help them offer or sponsor an inventory financing program. Consider the program to be powered by Vero. We're the servicer and administrative agent on the program, but the bank is actually able to fund dealers directly through our platform. Um, on a one-to-one basis. So that allows the bank to really market inventory financing to the dealers in their local communities without ever investing in upfront, um, you know, in, in building out specialized headcount or, or adopting any additional systems in order to offer the product. Yeah. Okay. And so um, you said uh, earlier that you, you had to kind of prove yourself as a lender to begin with, basically being your own balance sheet. So when... When was when was the chasm that you were able to bring on more institutional investor versus basically using it off your own balance sheet? Yeah, um, I mean it was a process that we started in in July August of last year. Um, we frankly started talking to private credit shops about the credit facility um, before we even thought about our seed round. We quickly learned that in order to take on a meaningful amount of debt, you have to have a bit more cash on your balance sheet for that matter. So um, started a process that we ran in parallel, um, doing both debt and equity raise. And um, you know that was obviously came with its own unique set of complexities, um, trying to do your initial seed round as a balance sheet lending business is... Um, you know, it kind of precludes a lot of venture investors from actively participating. Um, but we were able to zero in on a group of folks who understood the auto finance business, who understood specialty lending, um, and who really, you know, believed in the team that we had put together to execute on the vision. So, um, we're, we're definitely fortunate. We were very excited about the population of investors we brought on board and, um, we're ready to go to town here on out. But before before you raised the C round, you did actually, didn't you raise some like LP money for a credit fund? Yeah. So that actually, you know, took a few different, sh- the, the, the shape of that investment took, uh, evolved really even since you and I had spoke initially. So rather than doing a fund structure, which was just going to create a lot of overhead in terms of legal expenses, we ended up taking on um, uh, corporate debt uh, from a parent person, a parent company perspective. So um, it was a bit of a quick and dirty solution. And it was one of those things where we took on a million dollars initially. Once we worked through that initial million dollars, we took on two more. Um, and so it was you know, just biting off the very smallest amount that we were comfortable chewing on. And then fortunately, found additional folks to come in as we were growing um, to come in with more. And so it, it, I think, was a bit of a natural uh, trust-building exercise. Um, But we ultimately took that debt on in the structure of a promissory note to the parent company relative to a fund structure. Okay. And then um, what what are the milestones within fintech? Is it loan volume? Like how do you how do you progress, you know, when a typical company and venture capital is based on ARR and growth rate? How does a fintech company get valued and when do you hit these different inflection points? Yeah, I mean, the nuance with what we're doing and we're thoughtful about this, but if you're there's two different types of fintech companies at least in the credit space. There's those that take balance sheet risk and there are those who do not. Um frankly, the balance sheet component to our business, you know, there's a reality where we 
bifurcate that from the technology arm of our business simply because um, we think the technology arm, once it really has critical track, critical mass attraction, could be more valuable as a standalone entity relative to the balance sheet. Because it's higher margin. Correct. And there's a different, you know, a different set of risks that come with running a balance sheet lending operation, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of milestones, it's obviously loan originations. You know, the metric that in the early days of fintech credit businesses was somewhat, I would say, overlooked is the reality that you need to look at what delinquencies and charge-offs are. Obviously, every good fintech business that's lending is pricing in what those delinquency and charge-off rates are into their um, pricing models, but or I should say target yield. But um, at the end of the day, for it was very important for us to mitigate, especially in the first 12 months of lending, any types of charge-off and delinquency behavior. So we probably had a tighter credit box than we necessarily will maintain going forward. And that was because we wanted, we knew we wanted to sell into banks and we wanted to have a very compelling story around the strength of our risk monitoring um, and portfolio management tactics and tools. So I think obviously loan origination volume, you know, credit outstanding. Um, number of activations, but delinquencies and charge-offs are naturally the two others that are big. The other pieces are really just, you know, from a capacity standpoint, and this is another metric that I may care about more than most, but from a for every portfolio manager or account manager that we have on our team, what is their capacity uh, from a coverage standpoint? How many businesses can they cover in their normal day-to-day and stay on top of everything with? Because in my in my experience, you know, having worked at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, a large hedge fund, and now in the you know, and worked on a variety of client engagements in my last role, I saw categorically, no matter how big these finance companies were, that they ultimately were looking at operational bottlenecks and just throwing more human bodies at the problem until it went away. And so our goal is to build a scalable lending operation where Rather than having you know kind of um, linear growth between headcount and uh, credit outstanding, our loan servicing, our risk management team is able to monitor their portfolio very much in a, a scalable way um, and take that proactive stance using the tools and the insights that our platform derives without necessarily having to spend all of their day just culling reports on every single dealer that they have coverage of. Okay, and so. Tell me about the go-to-market kind of motion, you know, within um, Lever, right? Because Lever is the actual the software arm, and Vero is more of the the lending arm. Reversed. So Vero okay. is the software arm, and Lever is the lending arm. Got it. So that would make sense. So tell me a little bit about you know the kind of the go-to-market you know um, motion, and I mean, do you operate it similarly to kind of an outbound SaaS type company? Yeah, we're we're kind of running a, a combination of both a traditional direct sales model as well as you know more of the kind of scalable SaaS outreach programs. So um, naturally, you know, the first year we kind of believed in the mantra of do things that don't scale, and you can really learn a lot from the hand to hand relationships you have with with your customers. So we were out on the streets selling to dealers within our target markets, and uh, you know, really we just started selling into the banks in the last three months, but doing that on a very analog or traditional basis. Um, we've since really started building 
out those indirect sales channels or thinking about kind of the you know BDR up to escalating to an AE type approach um, as we've started to put the pieces in place to scale. So our biggest emphasis right now is building indirect sales channels or selling from one to many. And in a sense, that's what our bank partnerships provide us. So if we can partner with a bank who has 50 or 100 dealer relationships in their target markets, that bank then becomes a sales conduit for us. And obviously, our goal is to be able to help as many banks and dealers at the end of the day as we can reach. But it's much more efficient to partner with a single bank who gives us access to you know 100 dealer relationships in addition to helping those dealers acquire inventory financing through their preferred financial services provider as it is. So it's kind of a win-win working with banks to ultimately reach dealers who are in a way the end customer. Do you have to like really work with innovative banks to, get to make sure that they know to push your product? I mean, how is channel sales through banks? Yeah, it's obviously a... Um, it can be a very messy, messy area or, or channel to sell through if you're not doing it the right way. We're very fortunate to be part of a program that's sponsored by the Independent Community Bankers Association, which really it's an accelerator for fintechs who are looking to work with community and regional banks to identify and partner with those more forward thinking banks who can really be your evangelists. So um, we've been a part of that program for the last eight or nine weeks now, and that's really allowed us to go from zero to 60 on the banking partnership channels. Um, and, and so there was almost a self-selection there where we've met with you know nearly 150 banks at this point over a very brief period of time. Um, and those banks that participate in the program are naturally banks. I mean, I feel like if community banks really like... I mean, they could have the world by the balls if they so choose, you know, I mean, to have the flexibility that they have, you know, the competition of these big national bank brands is like abysmal. I mean, that they're terrible. Like I walk into a Bank of America and I'm like, dude, I'm your customer. And they don't give a shit about how much money you have or anything. Like it it is absolutely abysmal and community banks are dying. Right for things to sell, and um, you know we had John Wapsh on this show, uh, the CEO of Nerve, who was also the Chief Strategy Officer at Casasa, and he was talking about just building these these product lines through community banks and lenders, and because they just needed more stuff to sell, and they could actually come up with a universal brand, and they did very well doing that. Yeah, I think we've we've definitely taken a page out of Casas's book um, in the sense of being able to help these community bank organizations be successful, but providing them the support to actually offer your product successfully is critical. Um, and so it's you know. We have a customer success team for our dealers, and we also have a customer success function for our banking partners to make sure that they have the support they need to actually successfully utilize um, the program once they have access to it. Yeah, so I, I really liked what you said about going out and being analog with your with your efforts. You know, going in, talking. You know, br- uh, bringing in a sales. Um, you know, you know c- carrying a bag, going in, meeting your customers. So, on a scale of one to ten, right now. John, where do you think you are in terms of, you know, the proverbial product market fit? Really, I think of our business having a few different levels of product market fit. 
So, you know, think of the level one business is inventory finance. And, you know, given that we've funded more than $15 million in wholesale purchases in the first six months of really kicking our lending activities into gear, um, I would say that's about as close to product market fit for that level one business as we could have hoped for. Now, level one business being the actual credit funding business. Yeah. So, so the thing about level one business is just providing inventory financing to auto dealers. The level two business is really working with banks to help extend that credit to their respective dealers. Um, and then level three is some a more of a technology play, which uh, I can share more on um, a few months down the road from now. But the level two business being the, you know, working with banks to help them offer new commercial credit products. I would say we're just, you know, beginning to ensure beginning I, I think we have the initial points of validation in terms of product market fit um, we need to simply execute on the traction that we have and I think you know six months from now when we are fully activated with the banks that right now we're going through kind of contracting phases with and we have a, a track record of performance with those banks um, I'll, I'll have a little more confidence in saying that we're at that 10 number. So let's call it five today. Um, and, and that's kind of how we think about everything is, you know, we're, our business is going to continue to expand. There's a lot of different directions that we can take it. There's a lot of ancillary, you know, complementary products that we can add in terms of how we support our dealers or our banking partners. Um, and so we think of product market fit as a constant evolution of, okay, we've got established product market fit in a high degree of confidence on one foundation component of the business. Now, let's think about version 1.1 or 1.2 and how are we going to confirm product market fit about those around those additional um, constructs. You know, it's, it's not a it's not as straightforward as just uh, okay, here's our one widget and we want to take this widget from 0 to a billion. Our business is going to consistently evolve over time where there's, you know, a very kind of multifaceted value proposition that we can bring to the table. Sure. And so when you were doing more of your customer discovery, selling into the dealerships, getting this loan origination value out, how did you prioritize feedback to, you know, offer the product? Because, you know, and like how much of it was common versus, uh, you know, kind of stuff that just seemed to be one offs or fringe cases. And how did you think about that as a founder? Yeah. Um, I mean, for the first, you know, 12 months, um, we were having daily stand-up conversations with everyone across the organization to discuss any feedback they had received from any of our customers. So whether it was someone on the sales side who was going out and prospecting for new business and getting feedback from cold prospects, or if it was someone on the account management side who was interfacing and supporting a dealer, or it was internal feedback, whether it be from operations um, or someone who owned the banking relationship, someone who worked with auctions and other suppliers. We were raising and elevating all of that feedback and then really figuring out, A, you know, being customer-centric is a core value. So dealer feedback was obviously elevated to the top of that prioritization matrix. Um, but really, what was going to allow us to be more efficient, to be attractive to the most dealers? And if we heard something once, it was, okay, acknowledge that feedback. But we have higher priority things to deal with. Once we started hearing feedback or similar details, you know, week in and week out, then we recognized it was a commonality that was going to be leverageable across the broader swath of the market. 
Um, so it's one of those things where we were moving very fast, but we weren't making fast decisions. We were prioritizing things based on what we kept hearing repeatedly um, and use that as kind of a very fluid function to evaluate how important them. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. And how did you end up doing Like, What's the origin story with, with you and you know working within fintech and credit? Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a banking background and, um, you know, BAML was, uh, I felt like a little bit of a cog in the wheel there. Um, moved to an asset management business where, you know, we started at 250 people. By the time I left, it was 400 people. We had gone through an acquisition um, and still felt like on a day-to-day basis, you know, I wasn't necessarily seeing the, the fruits of my labor. Um, <laughs> and so ultimately went to work helping incubate and stand up new businesses for a software development company that was based out of Copenhagen. And it was a great call it, uh, I got to start companies with training wheels. I worked in a space where we, you know, we had funding, we didn't necessarily have to work with the venture side of the equation, but I was able to take a product concept, validate it, outline a go to market strategy, um, really kind of own product development as far as interfacing with our engineering team. Um, and did that twice um, with that group, at which point it was uh, I was ready to go off on my own. And so I gained exposure to this segment of the market, um, you know, through a prospective client relationship there. Um, and it was enough to kind of open my eyes up to these more unique uh, verticals within the credit markets. Um, and initially, we had thought about just building out a commercial lending platform focused on inventory financing. Um, but ultimately we saw that the economics are a bit sweeter when you start doing the lending yourself. Mm-hmm. And so tell me about CBX market and your, your role there. Was that the venture studio? Yeah. So it was actually a software development business. They did a lot of consulting engagements. Um, and it was an idea of the, uh, the CEO over there, Eric, um, who was struggling to manage his own personal fixed income portfolio and kind of recognized there was a lot of cost, uh, I would say lower cost or cost attainable tools that were alternatives to Bloomberg in the equity space. But those tools did not necessarily exist within the fixed income markets. Um, so they brought me and one other individual on board to take this kind of concept that Eric had and, and really a, a prototype um, and figure out how to make it a business. And so it, it evolved into really being a Portfolio management solution, very much purpose built for fixed income desks. Um, and we took that business, you know, from zero to 20 clients over a couple of years. Um, and then we had another idea internally as we were exploring, um, applications of enterprise blockchain within the fixed income space. And that was really what led us to ultimately found Bond One. Yeah. And then we'll, tell me about Bond One. Yeah. So the goal here was, you know, we saw especially within the securitization markets that asset originators. So think about a mortgage originator who is packaging up a pool of loans and ultimately doing a securitization deal. There were, you know, you had the originator, you had the servicer, trustee, administrator, issuer of the structured product. Um, and there was a 30 to 60 day lag in terms of investors and asset-backed securities actually being able to price in the performance of the underlying asset. And so we really looked at that value chain and identified certain areas where we could streamline um, month-end reconciliation or even intra-month um, pricing of those underlying assets. 
um, using a platform technology that we had built out. So it was, um, you know, I would say we were a little early on the blockchain train. Uh, this was really 2018, 2019 um, that we went all in on this, um, at least in terms of selling a solution into institutional um you know, institutional clients within the banking space. But that being said, we learned a lot about how those markets work, you know, the inefficiencies that do exist, um, and gained exposure to a lot of more esoteric kind of subsectors within the securitization markets, which ultimately is, is kind of how I stumbled upon um, inventory finance. Okay. So what's the next 30, 60, 90 look like for you? You know, you just raised yeah. a, a monster round, monster seed round. So what's next? You know, headcount on our team has grown 50% in the last month. Um, we obviously made a bunch of hires, you know, moving into the closing process. And so making sure that over the next 30 days, we successfully onboard those folks. You know, obviously, as the organization grows, people are able to actually really... Everyone's still wearing a lot of hats, but we can refine and kind of go a level deeper in terms of scoping out people's roles and making sure that there's continuity in terms of... Um, handing off of processes that used to be owned by a single individual. So that's really the focus for the next 30 days. Um, beyond that, you know, I think uh, day 60, we, we have, like I mentioned, a handful of banks that we're moving through partnership discussions with. And so our goal is to go live with two of those banks in the next 60 days. Um, and then really day 60 to day 90 is making sure that these banking partnerships go off without a hitch and get the support they need from the organization to make sure that it's a win-win-win for us, the banks, and their dealer clients. Mm -hmm. And so what was important to you when you raised the money from an investor? Like, What did you want as an investor? And um, you know, how'd that relationship go? Yeah. Um, we wanted investors who truly understood who either had unique experience within the space, whether that be auto finance, commercial lending, um, uh, you know, some type of specialty lending uh, type exposure, or investors who, you know, provided us really that kind of product and technical expertise, whether it be from data analytics, workflow automation, you know, thinking about scaling a platform like ours, where there is a very kind of you know, multifaceted value proposition. So um, we are fortunate. The lead investors are actually, um, you know, they have a legacy of investing in the credit space. They were early stage investors on a handful of other um, fintech lending operations and really have uh, also a breadth of experience within the auto vertical. Um, so the group at Arcadia Funds um, came in to price the round for us, um, and uh, we filled out you know the follow-on investors where it was folks that either had been with us since the early days, um, Antler, for example, and really understood how we operate from the management team, how we you know what we believe in in terms of building out the right to profile of an organization um, and sourcing talent to support that model, um, and then some other folks who either have. Um, you know, a variety of uh, kind of vertical integration, um, vertical integration experience or, um, um, you know, relevant platform experience, platform building experience, I should say, from a product perspective. Yeah, I mean, having operational partners within a venture firm that can help with the, you know, continual evolution of product market fit is invaluable. It really is. Yeah, I think especially as you start thinking about making more frequent bets in terms of which direction to go from a product roadmap. 
Right. And it's just having having product market fit, it just seems like there's just so many less shortcuts than saying scaling, right? Where scaling, all you really need to do is know how to hire the people that know how to scale, you know, whereas somebody with product market fit, I mean, that is a job that's solely based on, you know, the founder, you and Isaac, and then, you know, and your customers, like there's no shortcut to that. You can't hire for that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's you. You definitely want to find folks who, and it depends what role they're taking on. But who, for example, our our VP of credit has operated in the space for the last fifteen years, and before that, he was a car dealer. So he's been on both sides of the uh, equation. Okay. Cool. And so David has been able to help us think through, you know, how do we manage portfolio risk as we're scaling? Um, and so that was a critical hire where we needed that domain expertise. Um, but when it comes to product market fit, it's we're trying to envision, you know, what the next generation of inventory financing is and really a platform where inventory financing is just one component of the value proposition. And so that's something that obviously it's much harder to, to, uh, paint the picture and then lead the ship towards. Right. All right. So kind of canned questions time. What's your favorite book? Uh, fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. I have a really good answer for you if you said fiction. Okay. Um, what was it? Fiction? Uh, fiction is Gentlemen in Moscow by Immortals. Great. Great historical fiction read. Uh, you really fall in love with the characters. Do you know what's really funny is that I've actually had somebody on this show who said Gentleman Moscow is their favorite book. Really? Yeah. He's got a few really good ones. Uh, Rules of Civility is, uh, is up there as well. As far as nonfiction, though, um, you know, I like uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's a Horowitz book. Um, I... I really like, actually, this is a good one. Designing your life. Um, the author's names don't come to me off the top of my head. It's two Stanford design school professors. Um, one of them was an Apple product guy before he got into academia. But the whole gist of the book is effectively a thought exercise to take a product development approach to being thoughtful about what your ideal life circumstances look like. So whether that is what kind of career do I want to have? Who is the right partner for me? Um, you know, how do I spend my free time? It's a very thoughtful and productive, um, kind of approach, especially as you're thinking about charting out what your career looks like. So it was a book I stumbled on back in my kind of mid twenties and it was definitely at a pivotal moment when I, uh, was able to really take advantage of the exercise. Nice. Best piece of business advice you've ever gotten. You don't do business uh, with businesses. You do business with people. Nice. I like it. Okay. And then um, who's somebody you like to follow? Um, you know, for better or worse, I'm a big Ray Dalio guy. Um, it's probably turned me into a little bit more of a cynic as far as what the future of the world holds for all of us. But um, I think it's very practical guidance uh, in most cases. And um, it's definitely grounded me a bit. Yeah, I love Ray Dalio. I love what he does. I really hope he's wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe he's right. More yeah. often than not, but I don't know. There's a, we're living through a very geo, geo, uh, interesting geopolitical moment and potential shift right now. So, but, but the uh, Shanty World Order book, I mean, it's like it's almost like a prophecy. It's like everything is coming into fruition of what you know he's talking about. You know, it's a great read if you're if you want another kind of counterpoint to Ray Dalio's view of the world. Read the next hundred years. Um, 
as you can tell, I'm really bad with author names, but The Next Hundred Years is by a geopolitical theorist um, who's, I think he runs a think tank in Washington, D.C. He wrote it in 2008 around kind of a decade-by-decade approach of what the, you know, the the shift in the world order looks like. Um, I read it in 2018, and it was pretty mind-blowing that you know, shit he had suggested 10 years prior was uh, in many ways coming true. So, who knows? It's nice, yeah. to get a, it's nice to get some alternative views so that you're not all in on one thinker. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to have a, um, a balanced content diet, I think. Yes. Critical. Because um, otherwise you really can go nuts, nuts so. Well, yeah, and, it's, and you become very intellectually lazy, right? Yes. And, you know, if you don't do the work, um, you're just, it's just garbage in. What happens is garbage, your garbage output in your actions. So, yeah, yeah. You, uh, you stop being discerning about what you're hearing and from who and you just take it as fact. Exactly. All right. That is a wrap. Thank you so much, John. Um, this is the Capital Stack Podcast, where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, all investors, value creators for disruptive and innovative um, solutions for problems that are out today. Um, thanks again, John. I hope to have you back sometime soon. And uh, if you like this, please share it uh, with anybody or we could or like it at a review. You can find us on all major podcasting platforms. You can search my name, David Paul, or The Capital Stack. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.